Hebrews 11, verse 30 and 31. What we're going to do again is see two more examples of faith from Hebrews 11. If you've been going through this, pretty obvious what he's doing. He's just giving us an example from the Old Testament about how a group of people or a person expressed faith, and the proof of their faith was an action that they took. And he's writing to his audience, the Hebrew audience here, to get them to remember and understand that as a Christian, faith is required to, first of all, be saved. It takes faith through Jesus Christ to be forgiven of your sins. It's not works that you do to earn salvation. It's faith of you confessing that you can't earn it and you just need God's grace to forgive you through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then the question becomes, as a Christian, what now? He's making this case you still have to live a life of faith, a lifestyle of faith, where in everyday moments, year after year in your life, you're still sort of expressing faith through not just what you believe, but what you do. So again, not saved by actions, but proving you have your faith because of actions of faith. And here an example today, we're going to see two more that he will draw upon it was a little difficult because I didn't want to sound like I'm just being a, a parrot repeating the same thing. But what he brings up in today's examples, we've kind of already talked about these themes before. It's like he's doing it again. Uh, we looked at some examples of Noah where he obeyed anyways. He was given a crazy plan by God, and yet he obeyed anyways. That touches a little bit on today. The Israelites are going to be given a crazy sounding plan about how to conquer Jericho, you may know the story, but they're to march around it rather than just directly attack the city. Again, sounds crazy, but they obeyed anyways. Then we've touched on things where people have had courage because of their faith. The midwives, the Hebrew midwives had courage when they protected the Hebrew children, baby boys that were born. Moses' parents had courage when they hid Moses. Moses had some courage. So it touches on these again, but I thought, well, I just don't want to keep saying the same thing. Like, what else is here, maybe, that we could learn that's new? And here's what I think is something we can also see from this passage without repeating the same themes before. I think there's another theme that these two examples we're going to look at tie together. You have two groups that are about to face some opposition. They're about to go on. Israel's about to go on the attack. I'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to talk about another person who is in the city that is about to be attacked. She's one of those people. In both instances, they express faith in God. And what I found as a theme that kind of ties them together, I believe, is both of these are going to show us an example about how when you have real godly faith, it will cause you to take godly risks. So that's the title and the theme today. Real faith will cause the child of God at times to see a risk. It's a risk to you. It could be bodily risk, some type of social risk. And you know if you obey God in that situation, if you do the right thing, if you stand up for Christ, if you just would dare show your faith or share your faith, you know there's probably a little bit of risk that you're going to get back from that to one degree or another. But godly faith would say, I'll own the risk. If it's a godly risk, if it's a worthy risk for God, I'll do it anyways. Again, these examples in Hebrews are to show us things like this. I believe that if you read the Bible from cover to cover, and if you've been a Christian long enough in life, you'll probably agree with this, 
God often calls people, often calls his children to do things that may seem crazy to the human mind. It doesn't make sense to do that. It seems risky because there's an unknown. You're not sure how it's going to work out for you. You feel like you should do something for God, but there's so much gray area to it. The rules don't look like they follow for your life. You're not sure what's going to happen. Some modern day examples would be, think of a person that says, I think God's calling me to be a foreign missionary. That individual, they may have a family as well. When we were at the Southern Baptist Convention, there were people we could not see their faces. We could not know their names. They had to stand behind a white curtain and we could just see their shadow. And some of them had children going to places where it's illegal to be a Christian. Imagine the risk that they're taking. Personal risk, physical risk. And yet they said, God's called me to something. It's risky and I know it, but it's worth it. How could they do that? Because of faith. Think about someone that says, I'll leave where I've grown up. I'll leave the family around me because maybe God's called me to move to New York City and plant a church in downtown Manhattan. How crazy would that sound to others? But this person would say, but God's called me to that. There's risk. It's uncomfortable, but by faith, I'll do it. I think about military chaplains. Our convention, I've said it before, but I'm proud of it. We, we, we have the most or endorsed chaplains in the military than any other religious group or Christian domination. But these men and women, they say, I'm called to ministry, but not traditional ministry. I'll leave family and home and friends and go deploy with soldiers, sailors, and airmen just to minister to them, to share Christ with them. There's a risk they take. Think about just more commonly a Christian parent just living their life, raising their children, but feels the pressure from other parents who don't share their beliefs and convictions about how to raise godly children. Think about a Christian parent who would dare to raise their kids differently to be a follower of Christ than do what other parents do with their kids in the ways of the world. I think about that teenager who's in school and maybe they're the only one that they know around that has real faith in Jesus and they're at school and they feel this, this tug to speak up for Jesus to the people around them, but they know if I do that, everyone around me may mock me, may make fun of me, not want anything to do with me. There's a risk is the point at times for expressing your faith or just standing up for your faith, showing it. Well, here we'll see an example of but how does faith cause someone to go ahead and take that risk? If you would look at me in Hebrews 11, verse 30, I'd ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's word for these two verses here. We'll just read 30 and 31. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray for a moment. God, thank you for your word, your truth to us. Thank you for salvation in Christ Jesus. It's found in no other name except the name of Jesus, his death and his resurrection given for us on our behalf. Thank you for that. Now I ask, Lord, that you'd use this truth from these two verses to give us boldness and courage to step out there on faith and do things we believe you've called us to do or just say things that we think we should be saying around others even though we may have some fear of what we'll get back from it. Thank you for these examples we have. These men and women weren't perfect, but yet they took great faith at times in their lives and now we can look to them as examples. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. First thing I want to explore in verse 30, the first example is this. Faith takes the risk of following God's plans. 
So faith, ta- so real faith will lead to taking godly risks. Well, the first instance is faith can cause someone to risk following God's plans. In verse 30, it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled, walked around for, for seven days. This is found in Joshua chapter 6. It's the story of the walls of Jericho and their songs and little kids' stories about the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. That's what he's talking about here. Let me just share the context. Israel has left Egypt under Moses, but they disbelieved God, lacked faith. They disbelieved him to the point that God told that generation of Jews, the first generation will call them out of Egypt, told them your, your punishment is you will not enter the promised land. You will die in this wilderness and your children will be the ones to pick up after you and they will get to enter the promised land. So for 40 years, they wander around until that first generation dies off. Now Joshua picks up. Moses himself is dead. He himself couldn't enter. Well, now Joshua, the new leader after the Moses, new generation of Jews now, and they're ready to go and take the promised land that God had promised them. Well, here's the plan that God laid out for them. And you got to remember in their day, when you would go attack a city, cities were kind of more like a nation among themselves. They were called city-states. They would sometimes have their own king. And the cities were usually fortified by massive wall structures that would just literally prevent an invading army from being able to get inside the city and take them over. So what a conquering army typically had to do is you may have heard the word to siege a city or besiege its walls. What that meant was is they would cut off that city so that the city, the people inside, they couldn't get out without being attacked. So the outside army would cut off the city gates and basically wait. They would wait for months if need be until the people inside ran out of food and water and supplies and they couldn't go out and get them because if they go out, they're just going to be attacked. So that was one way to do it. Another way to do it was you would have these big instruments of war that maybe could kind of have bridges that go over the walls or bash in the walls and you could break through. A lot of historians point to that Jericho would have been very, very difficult to do that with. It's estimated that their city walls were incredibly strong, incredibly high, incredibly fortified city. So God has a different plan than the traditional way for an army. In Joshua 6, verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. So, so they see what's going on, and now Jericho's kind of hunkered down just waiting to see, probably thinking our walls will protect us. They've done it before. We're fine. It says, None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do this for six days. So for six days, once a day, what do you do? Do you attack it? No, just walk around it. But he goes on. Verse 4, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. So on the seventh day, you do it a little different. You're going to do it seven times. Then after the seventh time, the priests are going to blow the trumpets. Verse 5, when they make a long blast with ram's horn, When you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So again, think about hearing this plan. You're used to conventional military tactics. And you're told that the way to conquer this stronger fortified city is you're just going to walk around it. You're not going to 
lobby an arrow at it at all. You're not going to take your sword and hit anything with it. You're not going to try to build giant catapults and break through. None of that. You're just going to walk around it once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. And when your priests blow the trumpets, do we attack then? No, you'll just kind of see the walls collapse in front of you. Then you'll rush in and attack. Let's be honest. How crazy would that sound to you? It sounds crazy to me. I mean, sure, I, I would believe God. I'd try to, to be honest. I'm just being fair as a human here. I'd want to believe him. But if, if you're honest, you'd probably sit back and say, are we seriously doing this? Is that what's supposed to happen right now? Is just walk around it and the walls are just going to collapse? Like that's what's going to happen? But it is. Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And they did it. They exercised faith. They followed God's plans exactly the way that he said to do it. Well, they do it for six days, once a day. Then on the seventh day, they do it seven times. It says in verse 16, the seventh time, When the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. That phrase is an incredible expression of faith because the walls are still up at this point. And yet Joshua can cry out, God's already given you the city. Armies back then, probably today, maybe I don't know, but I know in the Bible times when you read stories of armies fighting, you don't shout until you've won. This is a shout of victory. But the irony here is Joshua's got the order backwards. He says, go ahead and shout for victory that you've already won, but you haven't even fought yet. That's a sign of faith, though. He just knew God would do what he said he would do. So go ahead and shout for victory. It's done. And it happened the way he said in verse 20, the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him, and they captured the city. It happened just the way that God said it would. But I want to stress here the point from sharing this example in Hebrews. Sometimes to exercise faith, you will take on risk. There could be obedient actions you know you should take, but to do those actions, you will encounter a risk. A personal risk, a physical, a emotional risk, a social risk, financial risk, who knows? There's, there's a risk is the point. Think about in the Bible, we've already seen before, the Hebrew midwives that helped the Hebrew women give birth. Pharaoh ordered them to kill the baby boys, but they didn't. They took a personal risk. They could have been killed by Pharaoh for disobeying. They took a risk by faith, and they were honored for that. Think about when God called Israel to cross the border and start waging war with the godless Canaanites here in Joshua. Many of them could have said, but what's going to happen? We're going to war. Like like people get killed in war. There's a physical risk for them to do this. Jericho was the first spot. It's a massively strong fortified city. I try to just get myself in the minds of Bible people when I'm reading, like what could they have been thinking? These men with their swords and they're supposed to go fight and they're thinking, man, like we're We've never fought in wars. We're not trained soldiers. And we're supposed to go fight these Canaanite people who some of them have known war since they were teenagers. We're supposed to fight them just because God said. Probably some fear, some apprehension. There's a risk that they know they're facing. What if they do this and they look like fools because God doesn't do it after all? 
There's a risk there too. They hear God's plan and it sounds crazy, but they obeyed anyways. By faith, it says they did this. They encircled Jericho and the walls came down. They conquered the city. How could they overcome the great risk in front of them? They trusted by faith in God's plans. And that's what I want to stress with this first point. Real faith takes godly risk. Well, the first way is God may share a plan with you or you may read something from God's word that he's handed down as a plan. And you know, if I do this the way it says to do it, if I follow God the way I'm supposed to follow God, if I step out there and do what I think God is calling me to do, there's a lot of risk here, though. There's a lot of unknowns that I don't know what will happen to me or my family. God does this at times. Why would he do that? To grow our faith, to force us to rely on him. God oftentimes leads us into darkness, to be honest. Why? So we have to trust him to walk us through the darkness. You may know the 23rd Psalm by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But here's what gets missed in the 23rd Psalm sometime. We get to the verse where he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff are with me. But here's the catch with that verse. How is the sheep in the valley of darkness in the first place? The shepherd led him into the darkness. In that darkness, then the sheep could say, I'm in the darkness because God led me here, but I'll trust that I'll get through because if he led me here, he'll lead me through. That's why David could say, I can trust that God is guiding me even through this valley of darkness. So why would God do that, though? To force us to trust him. Then you grow. Why would God do it this way with the Israelites? To force them to distrust him by faith, that his plans are best. There's a risk, but follow it and let God do the work. He brings us to places of unknown territory, though, to grow us, to guide us through. Anything you feel God calling you to do, I understand. I understand this personally. You know, it's, it's risky for someone to think about doing things for ministry, stepping out there as a minister or a missionary or anything you do for the kingdom of God in an official capacity as well, to step out there and say, I'll go do this thing for the Lord that I think he's calling me to. But then you start to think about, but if I go do that, that's, that's a career change. What will the finances be like? What about leaving family? There's all these variables. But here we see, just trust God's plan, take the risk, because what you're really doing is you're kind of putting the risk on God. You're letting him deal with the risk. Your job is just to obey. Step out on faith, follow the plan. Let God take care of the consequences. Whatever you feel God calling you to do, you can't focus on the risk. You can't focus on the fears you have associated if you take that step and follow what you think God's calling you to do. Instead, you focus on God. Let him take the risk. God will provide what you need to get through it, just like he did Israel with Jericho. So faith takes godly risks sometimes. How so? Well, again, we see with that just that first point, faith takes the risk of, I'm going to follow God's plans, and I'm going to leave the consequences and the risk to, for God to deal with. I'm just going to obey like they did. The second way faith takes risk is, Faith takes the risk of siding with God. Faith takes the risk of siding with God. Here's our second example in verse 31. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, this is where it gets fun. So I just want to give you a warning. I love this part. We'll see how it goes. All right. So we see a person here who 
is very interesting. She's on the opposite side of the last verse we just read. You've got the Jews, God's people, supposed to go conquer the godless people who have their whole lives been against God and done sinless things. If you've ever wondered how bad the Canaanites were, the Bible at times said that they would sometimes take their babies and burn them on an altar of fire in honor to their false gods. These were not innocent people. God rendered judgment on them. Now you have a woman named here Rahab who's one of them. She's a Canaanite. She's not a Jew. She's a Canaanite. She's a resident of the city of Jericho. So she has been in this life. She has been in this system. She has been in this culture her whole life. She is one of the people destined to be judged by God. Doomed. Look what it says about her. By faith, she did something. Well, who, what did she do here? It says she did not perish along with the rest of Jericho with those who are disobedient because she had given, the ESV says, a friendly welcome to the spies. Other translations actually say it a little more accurately. She received them or she welcomed them with peace is actually the word. She was peaceful to them. She, she became an ally of the Jews is the point. She was on the side of Jericho, but when she encountered God's people, she switched sides. She sided with God. She sided with God's people. That's what she did here. Who was she? Well, Hebrews 11 doesn't hold back. He could have just said, by faith, Rahab. He goes ahead and says what her job was. She was a prostitute. By faith, the prostitute, Rahab. Here's what she did. Joshua says the same thing in his book. Rahab, the prostitute. So that gives us a clue about the kind of woman she was, her past. Very tainted, very dark, very sinful. But she's mentioned here in the hall of fame of faith. A woman with that kind of past. And yet here we read about her as a model of faith. That just fascinates me. She wasn't just a prostitute with a sinful past. Again, I've already said this, but remember, she is a Canaanite. One of the godless people that Israel is sent in to destroy. A resident of Jericho, the city, to be destroyed. Well, here's what happened in Joshua chapter 2 where she comes into play. It says in chapter 2 verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So he sent in spies to scout, do some military reconnaissance sort of. See what the defenses look like. Kind of tell us what the numbers of the military look like. Let's just kind of figure this out first before we go in there. And it says in verse 1, they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now I tried to do some studying on this and what I found is a lot of historians say this would have been a common thing to do. Back then if you're traveling through towns, they didn't have modern hotels. So a lot of times you stayed with merchants maybe who had a type of a shop they had extra room and they said yeah oftentimes prostitutes because they had the extra rooms in their homes so they argue here and i would agree with them why did they do this because it's like why did these guys go to her house this sounds sketchy actually it makes sense if you're them because you're trying to hide that you're a jew going into this city and you need to kind of blend in you need to not stand out So to them, it's natural, okay, we'll go to Rahab the prostitute's house because no one's going to question why we're there, so they won't come hunt us down. They did the thing that would probably have made most sense. Verse 2, though, they did get found. Since the king of Jericho said, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you who entered your house. 
they have come to spy out the land. So somehow, the Bible doesn't say, but it just, read between the lines, they somehow got caught. Someone noticed that they weren't fully fitting in, looking like the rest of Jericho. They saw them go into Rahab's house because the king of Jericho knew to go straight to Rahab's house. So where's those men that, that we were told came here? They're not one of ours, they're spies. We need them right now. Bring them out. But look at what Rahab does. Verse 4. But the woman, that's Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. She basically says, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I didn't know they were Jews. Then she says in verse 5, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on her roof and hidden them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So it says in verse 7, the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as the far as the fords and the gate was shut as the pursuers had gone out so she covered for them she said i don't know where they are i didn't know who they were and i don't know where they are now in fact they escaped earlier before the city gate shut at night if you hurry you can go get them so she sent them away and they they believed her here's what's fascinating about rahab though verse eight she now uses more words to express real faith it says just as joshua had commanded the people the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew. Here's what Joshua said. He commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day that I tell you, then you shall shout. So we skip down here in verse 12. Joshua rose early in the morning. The priests took the Ark, so they did their thing. They blow the trumpets. The walls fall down, but then, skipping to verse 17, he says, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers, or the spies, whom we sent. What happened earlier is, back in chapter 2 of Joshua, Rahab made a deal with these spies. And I don't think I have it on your screen, I apologize. I just want to read some key words. But she expresses some strong faith in Yahweh, the one true God. After she sends the king and the, the people looking for the spies away, she brings the spies down and she says to them, I hid you because I believe in your God. And then she details this story about how in verse 8 of Joshua 2 is where it picks up. She says to them in verse 9, excuse me, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And the word Lord, there's Yahweh, the special name for the Jewish God. She says, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted because of you. And then she says this, for the Lord your God talking to these Jewish spies, the Lord, your God, she says, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That is an Old Testament version of expressing faith for salvation because what she just said was, I forsake my entire life up to this point. All these countless false gods I may have worshipped, the things I've done, she now can turn to them and say, why am I doing this for you guys? Because I now believe your God is, is the one true God, the God of heaven above. No one else counts. So she took an action 
of saving these spies, sparing them. She made a deal with them and she she asked them, verse 12, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So they make this agreement and the spies say, yes, we'll honor that, but you have to do something. They said, get all your family that that you want spared, your family, your friends, bring them into your house and keep them inside. Don't let them go out. And then they said, hang the the spies here. They escaped by a rope that she let them down out her window because she lived on the the wall side. They said, hang that rope down out the window so we'll know when we're attacking the city not to go in your house and attack it. So she was spared from destruction, from being judged like the rest of the people. But what I want you to see is Rahab chose to side with God and his people, not just because she knew that was the winning side is my argument. She expressed faith in God, real faith. She had heard the stories and they were enough to convince her that's the only one true God. I must believe in him. Then when an opportunity came for her to help one of the people of God, she took it. Hebrews says, why is she in Hebrews 11? Because it was from a heart of faith, a model heart of faith. And I want us to see that she did this at great personal risk to herself. When those kings and the the police, let's call them, came to her house and she told them that, they could have said, we don't believe you, and searched her whole house and found them. What do you think they'd have done to her? She would have been executed. There's no doubt about it. She took great personal risk to side with God and follow God's plan. She expressed real faith in God that led to her salvation by faith, and God gave her grace for that faith. The proof that she had faith is those actions. She chose to side with God at risk to herself. Here's why I said this gets fun. It gets sticky. When you preach verse by verse through the Bible, like like I do, the the bad part of that is you, you can't avoid things that are difficult. You can't just skip over parts of the Bible that you say, I'd rather not talk about that because it's, it's difficult. Here's why this story is difficult, but we're going to talk about it. There's a catch with her. She lied. I mean, she outright lied to those people. She knew where the spies were, and she told them she didn't. She knew they were Jews, and she said she didn't know where they'd come from. She said they had already escaped in the city, but they hadn't. They were on a rooftop. She lied. She flat out lied. Well, what's one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not lie. Did she break God's law? How is it she could sin by lying, and yet at the same time, here we are talking about her as a model of faith? When it was through a lie that she took to preserve God's people. I say this is sticky because Christian theologians have debated this for eons. So I'm just going to scratch the surface. I will wager an answer of what I think is going on. But just know... um, A lot of people disagree with me. You may too, but maybe we'll still be friends. So here's the question. Was she wrong? She told a lie. And yet, how do we reconcile a lie is told and she's listed as a model of faith? Some people say, well, the the thing is, Hebrews isn't honoring her lie. It's just honoring her expression of faith. I don't think that passes for an answer because James 2.25 says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
James, by that phrase, sent them out by another way, is acknowledging she lied. Because she told the guards they went that way, but she sent them that way. She lied. James admits it. Yeah, she lied. And yet James says, model of faith. He includes her lie in her whole story as a package deal of how she's a model of faith. So again, I stress there's an ethical dilemma here. She lied, but yet is a model of faith. What's going on? Some do take the position, some commentators that I love and respect near and dear, uh, they will tell you that her lie was absolutely wrong. She should not have done it under any circumstances. It's always wrong to lie. God said don't lie. God said be of the truth. Never lie. So they would say that what she should have done is told the truth and let God work it out in his own way. I won't argue that, but I do take a different view. Because she's honored for her faith, and Hebrews and James say a part of her expression of faith was she lied about knowing where the spies were. I'm taking it together. You can't separate the two and say, we'll ignore the lie and look at the other things. The lie is a part of what she did, and she's honored for it as an act of faith. So the question is, is there ever a place for an ethical lie? Can you ethically lie? I was talking to someone Friday. They told me their grandmother was the church treasurer of a Methodist church for her whole life, small Methodist church out in rural Arkansas. And she, the way the Methodists work is you report to the high office how much tithe your church brings in. And they will tell you how much money they take from your church. They take a cut. Well, what she started doing over the years is cooking the books. She would report less tithe to the high office. She took the difference and put it in a personal CD on behalf of the church. She did this for 40 years. Then she one day retired and said, I can't keep the books anymore. I'm too old. She hands it over and her person that takes over says, where did this money come from? And she told him, well, here's what I did. And I asked the person when they told me, it was the person's grandmother telling me, I said, so you're telling me she ethically embezzled money. So is there a place for ethical embezzlement? So I ask, is there a place for ethically lying? It's a hard question. Rahab lied for an ethical reason, and she's honored for it by faith. I would say here, it is my conviction and my answer to you, and again, you may disagree, I think she did the right thing. I think by telling that lie, which lies are wrong, but she lied with a motive of faith. She lied with a motive of siding with God and his people. Now, there's examples of this I'll share with you if, if you're not sure about that. Think about the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus. They are ordered by King Pharaoh to murder Hebrew baby boys when they're born and they didn't, and when Hebrew, excuse me, when Pharaoh asked them why not, they lied. They said, well, we can't get to them in time. They give birth too fast. These women are just popping out babies before we get to the house. There's nothing we can do about it. That was a lie. Then you read, and it says God honored them for their actions and gave them families of their own. God didn't deny them because they lied. He honored them. Why? Because my argument is their lie was a higher purpose served for God. They didn't lie for self-preservation. They didn't lie for self-motive. They lied to side with God and his people. Another example I'll give you in real world. Think about if you were living in Germany or France during World War II and you 
sympathize with the Jews and you hid them under the floor of your home. And here comes the Gestapo, the Nazis knocking on your door and they ask you, we've heard a report that there's Jews in the area. Have you seen any? What do you do? I tell you what I do, I would lie. I'm going to say, I haven't seen the Jews. You sure? Are they in your house? Nope, haven't seen them. And they're under my floor, but I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to lie. Why? Because there's a dilemma going on. Tell the truth, sure, but you would be telling the truth to a wicked military force seeking to do harm to innocent people. The greater purpose served is to lie to protect the innocent, the Jews in that case. Rahab, I think, did the same. She said, I've got two options. I tell the truth to my own king and his people, but they're wicked. They're godless. They're kind of more like the Nazis. And I can lie, though, and protect God's people, who I know are on the right. They're the ones that are doing the right things here. I liken that what's going on. Another example you may consider What about an undercover police officer? I thought about a narcotics officer who has to go undercover. An undercover agent, their whole job is to misrepresent who they are, to lie. That undercover narcotics agent has to have a fake identity, fake background to lie to the the criminals he's after, to fit in among their ranks. He has to lie. Then at a point he can build the case and take them down. But a narcotics agent undercover can't go to the drug criminals and say, I I really don't want to lie to you, so I'm just going to tell you why I'm here. Will you still accept me in your gang? Well, no, you just said you're a cop. You just said you're here to find our drugs and throw us in prison. He has to lie. That's part of the job. I argue in that same scenario, that is a type of, and it sounds weird, but it's a type of ethical misinformation. I think Rahab did the same. She took a risk by faith. A part of that was she lied. Now, am I advocating for lying? Absolutely not. I'm not advocating lying. Hear me clearly. The difference comes down to motive, I think. Oftentimes we lie because we want to protect ourselves. We maybe did something we don't want others to find out. We thought something we want others to find out. Or we want something, and so we'll lie to get it. That's wrong lying. That's selfish, self-preservation lying. But like I said, I mean this with all my heart, and I, I hope you don't you know, think less of me for saying, yes, I'd lie. But if I were alive during World War II, yes, I'd absolutely have lied to the Nazis about knowing where Jews are. And I, I would have went to sleep at night with my conscience clear. Because that type of a lie is to preserve innocence. It serves a higher good for the Lord. Rahab did the same, I believe. There's also a principle in the Bible, Romans 13, Paul says, Obey the governing authorities. Do what the government tells you to do. They're there for your protection. But then you read in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested for preaching Jesus, preaching the gospel. They're threatened and they're told, don't ever preach again in this man Jesus' name. Stop it or we'll, we'll kill you next time. And Peter and John say to them, whether it's right for us to obey man or God, I'll let you decide, but we're going to obey God. So you have two apostles that stood up against the governing authorities and said, I'll obey you as much as I can. That's true. But when you force me to disobey God so that I can obey the authority, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to obey God rather than man, even man's authority. I think Rahab saw that and said, I'll lie to preserve God's goodness 
God's justice, his side. All of that now, to wrap that back up in a bow, to say this. She took a risk, personal risk, but by faith she did it anyways. She trusted that God would take care of it. And here's how she's rewarded. She's in Hebrews 11. First of all, now we look to her as a model. Matthew 1.5 is awesome. Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Savior. There's only three women by name mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Guess which one of the three is? Rahab the prostitute. It says in Matthew 1.5, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. Who is she? If I did my genealogy right, I was bad at math, but if I did it right, Rahab would have been the great-great-grandmother of King David. So not only did God spare her and her family for her faith, he included her by name in the genealogy, the family tree of the Savior Jesus Christ. It's easy at times to know that you should do something for Jesus, share your faith, do things that you know would let others know who you are, a Christian, a person of God, a person who believes in Christ. It's difficult, though, when you know that you'll do that, you may face a risk. You may simply face friends mocking you, family shunning you, people at work shunning you. It could go higher. You could actually face outright financial risk, maybe. Maybe a boss doesn't like your Christianity. My point is, you could think of scenarios that you've been in where you feel this tug of, I think I should speak up or do something that that is right for God, it's right for the Lord, I should do that. But if I do, I incur a risk of some sort. It's, it could be risky to stand up for God and let others see your faith in Jesus. But faith says, from the example of Rahab, I'll take the risk anyways, and I'll leave it to God. I'll let him deal with whatever comes from it, but my job is to have faith and obey and let God deal with the consequences. I'll take the hits if I need to. I'll take the jokes if I need to. I'll take the mocking. That's okay. I'll take it for God. Rahab said, I don't know what will happen. Maybe they don't believe me. Maybe they want to execute me. She said, doesn't matter. I have faith. I'm taking the risk. So real faith takes godly risk. It takes the risk of just going with God's plan no matter what. And it takes the risk of siding with God publicly when you need to siding with God and Jesus and showing that you have that faith, even when you think, if I do that, something will happen. It may, it may. But, but the reward is not, uh, are you safe down here? The reward is, is God pleased with you? You just look to God, not the risk. Again, everything I've said always begins with this. You cannot have the faith of Rahab, the faith of the Israelites conquering Jericho. You can't have that kind of faith unless you first have faith in Jesus Christ. A person cannot say, yes, I'll do these things if they haven't first already become a child of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, I I challenge us as Christians, have the kind of faith that takes godly risk and leave the consequences to him. And I second challenge us, are you in the faith? Can you say before you leave, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. And now I will live this life of faith because he's forgiven me of my sins by his sacrifice. I'm going to give us a moment to pray. And Bruce, and then we'll come as I do. And as I pray, again, it's my challenge to you. I ask yourself, God, show me the areas in my life where I'm holding back because I'm scared. I'm afraid of the risk. God, help me be like Rahab, like the Jews that just did it, no matter what. God, thank you for Jesus coming. And Lord, talk about risk. He took all the risk. He left everything he had in the throne of heaven 
to come be born in a lowly stable, to be of lowly human means, took all the risks physically to his death, a brutal death on the cross, so that we could be saved and forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that risk, knowing the cost so that we could be saved. We know you rose again, showing that if we believe in you, we also have eternal life. God, I ask that you help myself and everyone here as Christians to take those godly risks, follow your plan no matter what, and always show that we're on your side no matter what. In Jesus' name I pray.